in order to practice meditation, it is important to have what we call the right view. And the right view allows us to to enter, to engage in the practice of meditation in a way that is open and that may help us to, to realize this right view. So we start by stating a little bit mm, the vision uh, that one may realize or deepen through the practice of meditation. So speaking about the right view is not a way to try to convince ourselves uh, of a certain way of believing in reality, but rather giving uh, a possibility that we may explore. If we don't have this possibility, it's difficult to explore in this way. Explore to discover. America needed to have a vision of the, of the Earth as a spheric. If, it, if they had a vision as being flat, they would never go in uh, one direction, hoping to, to get back to where they started from. So they needed a vision. So in the same sense, for the practice of meditation, in order to open to, to discovery that are not uh, common, we need right view. And I want to speak tonight about the, the right view. And in doing so, also speaking about the different way that one can understand duality and therefore non-duality. Not um, believing to start with that they all say the same thing. That sometimes there is a, a lazy way to uh, to read, you know, Asian text or to listen to Asian teacher or to Asian vision, just to say they all say the same. Uh, one doesn't check really; it is easier. Say they all say the same, so therefore I don't need to understand anyone. You know. So I, I would like to question a little bit of that. And especially when we discover that they themselves were saying they did not agree. So more than 1,000 years later we come and say they agree. Well, they did not agree at the time they were together. So I think we could at least hear what, what they were saying. And to understand or, or maybe to... Mm choose one, one vision of duality and non-duality. I think this makes more sense for me, that's fine. But I think it's important to see the, the distinction to be made. So we, we are not bound by, by reality. We are bound by our imagination and the belief in this imagination. And that's, of course, very important. If we were bound by, by reality, then freedom will not be a possibility. So only if we are bound by imaginary bounds can we speak about freedom. So not bound by reality, but what is then reality? Mm. Certainly a, a lot of... Um, and so I've been given to what is reality, and we'll, we'll explore that uh, a little bit uh, from this perspective. For some Theravada, ultimate reality, that which can be found when we are not stopped by, by imagination, 
ultimate reality for some Theravada consists in, in various elements. Sometimes they speak about 57 elements of ultimate reality. Speaking about, about the mind and mental factors and then matters and, and nirvana sometimes reduced in, in nama rupa, the, the mind and, and, uh, and matter. So they say that is ultimate reality when we get rid of all our preconception, our beliefs, then if we get down to the experience that what we will find, we will find those ultimate reality. And therefore all the meditation is being organized in order to discover ultimate reality and not to stop at beliefs, imagination, concepts, to get to this ultimate truth. And it is very clear when we hear instruction in some system, it is very clear that, that the context of the practice, sometimes we hear some teaching about meditation, and when we ask questions, they say, well, we are not concerned with philosophy. But it's not possible. If you, if you start to do meditation, there is a, a belief of what you can, what you can reach or what, what it is about. So you cannot just escape in saying, we are not dealing in philosophy. Uh, we need to be confronted, not that we will overdo the philosophy, but still, there is some element of um, vision that are there as a ground of the practice. So it makes sense if you believe that ultimate reality, ultimate truth, is made of nama rupa, uh, mind and matter, it, is, it makes sense that in the practice one would open oneself to discover what are those ultimate truths. And then they are described as being impermanent, as being selfless and unsatisfactory. That, that we know very well this uh, aspect of uh, truth or reality. So that uh, is a background for a certain way of practicing vipassana, a very beautiful and deep way of practicing vipassana. So when this uh, Theravada state, that ultimate reality is made of nama rupa, it's very clearly a dual way is nama and rupa and they don't pretend to go beyond duality in this system there is no no discussion about the problem that would arise from duality now in many other systems Hindu and Buddhist system the confusion imagination that does not allow us to see truth or reality is duality. Duality is a structure of confusion that does not allow us to see reality. So duality we understand, it means two things at least, but do they mean the same two things when they speak about non-duality? Do they have the same vision that uh, the confusion holding to duality hold to the same things that we need to go beyond or to see through their imaginary nature. So we see that in, in 
the Hindus speak about non-duality, about the Advaita, very uh, strongly. We also find that in, in Christian mystics, some Greek philosophers, and also uh, in the Buddhist tradition. No, I don't mean they don't speak in other traditions, I'm just naming a few. So do they mean the same thing? I'd like to explore what is this confusion that is held as being duality. We find, I think in earlier sutra already, in the early tradition, we find elements questioning the, the duality, especially here, the one I want to, to, to quote is uh, questioning the reality of the duality of subject and object. Very clearly stated. In, in this sutra, the, the Buddha said, uh, speaking to the monks or meditators, he said, whatever the, in this universe, the Brahmas, Indras, Maras, and the priests, and the kings and princes, and common people, whatever they have seen, heard, touched, thought, this I have seen, heard, thought, so the Buddha is making it clear, he has no deficiency, it's not that uh, he doesn't see something. He said, I've seen the same, it's not that uh, what they perceive, hear or even think, that uh, is not known to me. He said, if, if I was saying that is not known to me, that will be wrong, I will be lying. So I know that. Saying is not disconnected with the common reality of, of people, or even gods, you know, devas and indras and brahmas, maras. He said, yet, when the Tathagata, when seeing, uh, seeing the Tathagata, I mean the Buddha, does not create uh, a scene, a to-be-seen, and a seer. When hearing, the Tathagata does not create a heard, to be heard, or hearer. So in this sense, it does not create an object and a subject. Speaking for the five senses in the same in, in thinking. So in this sense, in this sutra, the Buddha says is free from bondage because he does not create this duality of a subject and object, a seer and something being seen. So we find already in, in the earlier sutras is questioning at least in, in this sense from uh, the duality of uh, subject and object. That that is being very often questioned. We'll find in some other sutra also a few other where this uh, statement is very similar, where the, the Buddha states very clearly that he is not uh, holding to uh, a seer and a scene. Uh, so just resting in the experiencing. One is expressed in this sense, in, in seeing the in seeing that it's just seeing, in hearing just hearing. So just hear means no seer and no object. It's just the experience of seeing. Just the experience of hearing, just the experience of thinking. Now this this statement is quite short in a sense we we could explore what does it mean just seeing in, in seeing, just seeing in hearing, just hearing. One may understand that or explain that in, in different ways. So we, we may wonder if we get through the confusion of duality, 
what are we left with? And do all the system agree to what then are we left with when we um, read of the confusion of duality? Here we could imagine that we are left with in some sense consciousness, in hearing just hearing and seeing just seeing. So it seems that there is at least experiencing, there is at least consciousness. I don't mean that what it said, but we could imagine that could be understood in this way. There is just pure consciousness experiencing. In the Hindu tradition, the duality is really expressed through the the duality of Atman and Brahman, that has to be seen through, and therefore there is no duality between the Atman and the Brahman. Atman being the the self uh, in, in a non-conscious sense. And, and, and Brahman we can see in, in the text and already in the early Veda, that is, the Brahman is, is pure consciousness, is truth and, and, and bliss. It's described already in, in the Vedas very clearly as being uh, not, not changing, it doesn't change, it's, it's pure, pure consciousness, bliss and, and, and being. And the Atman which means that the, the self in a, in a nearly impersonal sense of every being is the same. It is uh, boundless consciousness and uh, being and bliss. So in the, in the Hindu tradition, what we are, in Advaita, it's certainly Hindu tradition is very vast, but in Advaita, what we are left with when we are rid of duality is the Brahman, pure consciousness, that what, uh, and oneness, that, that what we, we are left with, finally, ultimately. What does ultimate exist when confusion is gone? is the Brahman consciousness being and bliss. So that is the ultimate truth. And reading many Hindu texts, it is clearly expressed and usually beautifully expressed constantly. Expressed as being the, the one and the ultimate truth and ultimate consciousness. So that what... Uh, any meditation in this system should aim at, it is to realize that, to realize that uh, our consciousness is nothing different other than Brahman. Any belief that it is different is confusion and bondage. Reaching this uh, timeless consciousness, unborn, when we see the vocabulary that is being used here, we find very similar vocabulary used in the Buddhist tradition. Sometimes we read a text, we could not say this is belonging to this tradition, this belongs to another tradition. I was reading a text comparing early Advaita and Buddhist and checking some quotation, not reading the, the background, I could not say where they were coming from. Uh, it seemed they could apply to, to both traditions. And we will see why. And in this, uh, already in the Veda, it says, the pure consciousness has no birth, no destruction. It is innate shining, like space, it does not change. And to take a quotation from Ramana Maharshi, 
the I which rise will also subside. That is the individual I or the I concept. That which does not rise will not subside. It is and will uh, be forever. That is the universal I, the perfect I, on the realization of the self. So here we see the, the expression of a, of a self in, in, in a non-egoic sense for, for the meditators that is, uh, that is limitless, that is not depending on time, boundless, not born. That what should be realized. So here there is a, a clear statement or valuation of the sense of I, although it's not very clearly, not a, a limited and egoistic sense of self. Yet the Buddha was constantly reluctant to any such a statement, although it may not appear very early in the Hindu tradition, but he really, uh, we could see in the sutra that always uh, reacted, did not want any kind of uh, statue for the sense of self, you know, as, as permanent, as uh, not changing and boundless. Uh, this is very clearly in all the sutra, very clearly negated. So we see that this kind of language, at least in the earlier sutra, is not really promoted on the contrary is really not accepted and think that is uh, the confusion of, again with the Buddha was teaching. Yet we find in the Buddhist tradition also some school or some writer that uh, slowly moved a little bit away from this uh, teaching from the earlier sutra and uh, Dogen, the great Zen teacher from Japan, was criticizing some, some Buddhist teacher in Japan and I think already in India that were holding the, the mind, he said that people who say the mind is eternal, immobile, in past, present and future, as it is beyond light and darkness, we name it spiritual knowledge, we name it also the true self. So Dogen was again that, he said there's some, some call them, he said those people are not Buddhists, now we're not going to fight with Buddhists or not because it is a, a useless uh, fight, but we see Dogen, I don't know, 13th, 14th century maybe, quite long ago already, seeing that within the Buddhist tradition there are expressions sometimes here of the true self which is a little bit disturbing for a reader of the oldest sutra. How can one express oneself in such a way? So it is to say, here I don't want to, uh, to take this tradition and start to, to compare it. I will take the, more the, the oldest tradition and also the way it has expressed. It has been expressed uh, by Nagarjuna, for example. So I think staying very close to the Buddha's teaching, yet seeing the, the the outcome of what was the teaching. So we see there is a not holding the view of ultimate truth as in the Theravada finding elements, but I think in, in a more radical and uh, more subtle way. Trying to explore from this point of view. Uh, 
and uh, that way sometimes it's disturbing because we, we read in texts uh, and some statement that seems to be really not in, in, uh, in agreement with the earliest teaching of the Buddhist tradition. Again, there's no, no statement of the true self, that seems very strange. We could explore consciousness and see why, in a sense, uh, this confusion to take consciousness as self is, is very common. Very often we, there's a confusion at a lower level of reflection to believe that the, the consciousness is a self, and even at a much deeper exploration to believe that the consciousness is a self. But tonight I, I want to focus on, on duality and non-duality. Yet a few more words about, about that. It's, it seems that most of the meditators, yogi or mystics, when they try to inquire into reality, they follow some kind of, of uh, same similar attitude. I'm not saying they all go to the same, but in their exploration they wonder if we do not stop at any belief. Not stopping here and believing in that or that, any preconception. What will we find, finally? So they, they see, like Mahasakyati said, one need to get rid of temporality, of personality and multiplicity. Seeing that all those, temporality, multiplicity and personality, are concepts we're holding on. Getting rid of all that, then what one is left with. St. Augustine said, when I'm looking within myself for the ego, for me, I don't find anything but the divine light. Here we can mean consciousness. So in the, in the same sense, they all try, let's not stop at any belief, any concept. What will we find? And if we take a description of a Thai master describing in, in a very simple way concentration on breathing, meditation on breathing, very simple. He said, well, when the mind gets quieter and quieter, uh, there's a very, very uh, few movement, and at a time, at a point, it's lost its interest in the experience of here, the sensation of, of breathing, and finally the mind or consciousness just rests on itself, and it's just pure knowing. So we see, very simple exploration. Just breathing, but we are not so much concerned in this context, not so much concerned by sensation, not trying to discover anything about the sensation, either the impermanence or whatever, but just not holding, not keeping any interest in that, and then finally consciousness rests upon itself, and it's just pure knowing, describing that, not pretending that it is ultimate truth. So it is very common, in a sense, when one does not want to stop at, at beliefs, a concept that one finally is left with is consciousness. Consciousness devoid of any uh, object or, or thought, because the mind at this time is not concerned, is not interested in that. Therefore, the consciousness stays within itself. We see a natural movement that uh, finally lead us to this pure consciousness, to, to use a word. It is a thing that to 
discover that in one's own meditation and it is another aspect to take that as the ultimate truth that is that is different so for some for some this pure consciousness will will be the ultimate ground of 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 being or in existence that that is a truth so everything is appearing from that everything is the manifestation we can give different name to this pure consciousness either just pure consciousness or or, or the brahman or whatever so for some that is the ultimate reality <coughs> that the ultimate truth and anything appearing is just an appearance of this pure consciousness so anything appearing does not appear really there is nothing that does really come into being and, and go out because there is only pure consciousness appearing taking the aspect of this object or that object of this person or that person so in this sense nothing is arising and nothing is disappearing there is nothing but pure consciousness all the rest is illusion It is illusion because only pure consciousness, only the Brahman is the truth. All the rest is an illusion. Now we find something in, in Master Eckhart. He said that uh, the creature, whatever, whatever is, is created, um, is nothing because it receives its being from another, which means from God. So anything that appears, exists, um, you know, human being, animals, or things, they are nothing because they receive their being from God. Only God is, if you like. All the rest is nothing. So we have the same. Here the ultimate is God, but that um, all the, the object and, and being are just uh, nothing. Mm-hmm. Ultimate here is God. Now, in the Madhyamaka philosophy of, of Nagarjuna, really deeply rooted in in the Buddhist tradition, even in the earliest Buddhist tradition, so that uh, things are emptiness because they are depending on other for their being. So everything is emptiness because they receive their being from, from other, they are depending. But this emptiness also does not exist truly. This emptiness is also uh, is the way of being of this thing that has no true existence. And, and there is no ultimate ground for that. Things are, condition, are conditioning each other, but not one of these things has true existence. So we will find in, in Madhyamaka philosophy a statement that nothing comes into being or goes out of being, exactly as we'll find in, in some Advaita text. Nothing comes into being, goes in, out of being, because only the Brahman is the truth. But in Madhyamaka, the way they say it's completely different because there is no ultimate truth. So nothing comes into being and goes out of being. So the same statement we can read and say, well, they say the same, but they don't say the same. The the ground is very different. Now it's not only, if you like, a a theory, philosophy. The way one will practice meditation will be quite different if one is seeking, so to speak, to reach this ultimate ground of being that is pure consciousness or if one is not seeking any ultimate ground of being there's a, there's a very great difference here 
And I think that's quite important to acknowledge that. And one may choose whatever system one wants. It's no problem. But to say lightly that they are the same, I think it's not... uh, it's not very serious, it's not very respectful. It's a, as I said, a lazy way to say they all say the same. And, and Shankaracharya, the great Advaita philosopher, was criticizing the Buddhists for their vision of impermanence, selflessness, and causality. So he really did not agree with them. And he did not also accept the notion of emptiness. So he certainly did very clearly stated that he was not agreeing with that. So we may wonder what then in the Buddhist tradition is duality that one has to go beyond. Not the duality only of subject and object, not the duality of Atman and Brahman. You see, that's not the, the, the vision of the Buddhist tradition. So what is that that one needs to go to go beyond, not to stop at this duality which is confusion. So in one sutra, again, one of the earlier sutra, and maybe that's at the clearest statement, uh, Buddha speaks about uh, to, to one, uh, I think one monk, Kachana. Kachana asked the Buddha a question, said, one speak of right view, right view, but what is right view? And the Buddha said, in this world, there are two, two poles, two opposite. There is existence and non-existence. So it exists and does not exist. It is and it is not. But when one sees the arising of experience, of phenomena, one does not hold on to non-existence. And one sees the disappearance of phenomena, one does not hold into to existence. And he said, that is the middle way taught by the Buddha. The middle way is between it exists, it does not exist, between existence and non-existence. In most of the system where duality is being questioned, finally one reached to unity. Mm. Unity of, of the Brahman, or God, God, oneness, or the oneness of some philosopher. But here, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, non-duality does not lead to oneness. Non-duality does not lead to any ultimate truth. So in a sense, it's, it's, much, um, it's much less to grasp. We are left with nothing. Left with nothing, we cannot grasp at nothing because it's neither nothing nor something. So there's nothing that can be grasped. And if you like, in the meditation we've been exploring, that it's really taking that into account. And we meet, of course, in our practice, the tendency to, to want to, to grasp onto something. I am willing to let go of this and that, but what will I get in exchange? And what he he says that you don't get anything in exchange, but freedom. Freedom is exactly when you don't hold on to anything. So I think it's very important to see this aspect that... Uh, Non-duality in the Buddhist tradition does not lead to unity, to oneness. I know we can find some texts in the Buddhist tradition where one speaks about oneness, but here, following uh, the earlier sutra in Nagarjuna also, I think that is very clear, and also this sutra I've quoted here. 
So as we cannot say about anything it exists or it does not exist, then it is possible to say that nothing comes into being or goes out of being. But it's not because there is ultimate, only the Brahman exists, you know. Just because we cannot state as it exists or it does not exist. And I think that is quite, quite sharp in a sense. And it's important to understand this view so that one is not looking for something to grasp, but another truth, a deeper experience, looking for something. Again, it doesn't say there is nothing, it doesn't say there is something. It's beyond any grasping. It doesn't mean that things disappear suddenly. It's a way of being in the world which is different. Yet the world does appear exactly the same way. Not suddenly that it, it appears in a strange way. Just a way to be in the world, as non-grasping, as not stating anything. The need to state, it is this way, it is this way. It, it exists, it does not exist. This is beyond this need to grasp in any way. This is quite challenging. In one of the earlier sutras expressing the Madhyamika philosophy, the Vimalakirtini Adesha, is expressed sometimes in challenging way. Manjushri, the great Bodhisattva wisdom, questioning, questioning Vimalakirti, asks him, so, what is the path that a Bodhisattva follows to reach awakening? He is speaking about a Bodhisattva, hoping that it is somebody skillful. So how does a Bodhisattva follow a way to reach awakening? And Vimalakirti, who is very smart in the story, says it is by following a wrong path that a Bodhisattva reaches awakening. By following a wrong path. So this is quite a strange statement. So what, what, what can it mean? Not like a kind of those Zen stories that we never understand a word. You know? But what does it mean? Following <coughs> the wrong path. Yeah, you say about the Bodhisattva that seems to be someone skillful. But the notion of a right path and a wrong path is already holding to some kind of truth. If things we cannot say, they exist or not exist. So the notion of a right path or wrong path, and the notion of a path also, is misleading. So there is no right path or wrong path to be followed, no path to be followed. Because then it seems that there will be something to reach that does really exist, and something to get rid of that does really exist. Yet, if one were to believe that, one would be in deep confusion. One need to see that, not to believe it. To believe it, it it's absurd. It's not a belief. It needs to be a vision. And then it is an experience, then it is freedom. If it is a belief, it's the a, it's a deepest kind of bondage one can have. One then would do any kind of stupid thing, think that is, I just follow the wrong path, you know. And that, of course, would be very dangerous, leading just to more and more confusion. 
So the, the difficulty in aborting that kind of right view, which is quite uh, sharp and, and steep, is that to understand it is not the point, is to see it, to experience it. I don't know if experiencing is the right word, but, but to see it, and then this vision is freedom. But to believe it is confusion. And we know very well when traveling in the Dharma scene, as we hear people giving those statements, everything is empty and things like that, as if it were explaining everything. Again, as we believe, it's, it's uh, quite confusing. So now, to speak about this right view, if it is not to believe, but to experience, we may also wonder how can that be experienced if uh, there is really no right path and wrong path? How can it be experienced? And there I think we will need to come down to earth and to see, it's not because I'm trying to convince myself of something, but not trying to believe it, but to see it. I may really get a headache, you know, trying to do that, you know, convincing without convincing me. But I think there are many practices that we can do in order to bring the condition that may allow this vision to arise within us. And that's why we come down to earth. So now what can we do to make the condition possible for such a vision to arise? Not to create this vision, not to cause it, but at least that we give the situation proper that may allow that to happen. And then we can get to practice, like meta-practice. We need some, some opening. We'll see all the practices that are questioning some element of our confusion. So by opening the space, holding less to deeper state of confusion, then we may bring the situation proper that such um, realization may arise. But if we don't have this right view, this possibility of that happen, then we cannot be ha- we cannot be open to this situation because we are going to look for something to grasp some kind of ultimate experience, ultimate condition. So the the need or the expression of this right view is that um, if the situation is proper, then that can happen. But if we believe that the right view is, for example, we should really discover ultimate consciousness, pure consciousness, then we cannot be open to something that is beyond being and non-being, because we'll, we'll hold on to that, to, uh, and believing that's it, that, that's the ultimate truth. And I believe it does require uh, a fluidity of mind, a letting go very, very deep, in order that become a vision and not a belief. So we have tried today to to explore a little bit the practice from a kind of ultimate point of view, just seeing that whatever we believe that can be helpful or harmful, it's a sense of we give we give reality, we give reality to that, and then we try to play one against the other, promoting that can be helpful in trying to get rid of that which could be harmful giving them true reality. And it is very interesting 
inquiry to see that behind behind this uh, manipulation of experience there is a belief that those have some existence and it's striking sometimes to discover that then I believe they are they are really helpful they are really harmful yet sometimes when one has not the sensitivity for that, it is, then it is difficult. We wonder, so what I'm supposed to be doing? I try not to do anything, but still I do something, it doesn't lead anywhere, so I try again to do something, I get my toolbox that I'm used to, but then I'm not so confident, because I'm not supposed to use a toolbox, so one is getting a bit confused. So I think tomorrow we'll, we'll go on with this attitude and also bringing some element that can uh, help to bring the condition that uh, it is possible that may be a vision and not a belief. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.